Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer for ERMI and Captive.com. And on today's podcast, we have two experts who have been shaping the world of captive insurance from the bustling city of New York. I'm excited to welcome Bruce Wright and Saren Goldner from Evershed Sutherland's Law Firm to dive in deep into their expertise on how captive insurers use reinsurance and risk pooling. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Saren. Both of you have very impressive skill sets, and I enjoyed reading the many articles you've contributed to Ermi Risk Financing and Captive Insurance Company Reports and Captive.com over the years. And uh, to get started, could you both briefly introduce yourselves and share a bit more about your background and expertise in the field of captive insurance and reinsurance? Well, I'm Bruce Wright. And I basically started out as a tax lawyer and started to do, start practicing in the area of captives about more than 30 years ago. Ended up joining with a fellow by the name of Sidney Pine, who basically developed captives a long time ago. Sidney came to our firm and wanted somebody to work with him on this, and I started to work with him on captives. I became a CPCU and then if the rest is history, I just worked for the last 30 plus years on captives. Uh, I wouldn't say it was entirely what we worked, I worked on, but it was a large part of my practice. And today is probably all my practice. Great. Sarah? Well, I've been working with captives for over 25 years and about 80% of my time these days is spent doing captive work. And I do everything captive soup to nuts. So on the tax side, both federal and state, and insurance regulatory work, as well as corporate work. And I love problem solving and creating novel solutions for difficult questions. Awesome. Well, thanks for helping our listeners get to know you better. Well, let's move to our discussion on how captive insurers use reinsurance and risk pooling. So, Sarah, a captive insurance company is an insurance company that has, as its primary purpose, the financing of risk of its owners or participants, and I'd be helpful if you could explain what reinsurance is and its role within the context of captive insurance for our listeners who may not be familiar with the concept. Certainly. So if we start with insurance, and insurance is the direct purchase of risk coverage, for example, purchasing a car insurance policy, then reinsurance is when the entity providing the direct insurance purchases risk coverage for its obligation to pay under that car insurance policy in the example. And reinsurance is utilized by captives in two primary ways. The first way is assumption of risk. So a captive may write a reinsurance and assume risk from a licensed insurance company. In other words, the licensed insurance company writes the business directly, like that auto policy, and then reinsures it to the captive. This could be done because first dollar coverage is required by a licensed insurer pursuing contractual terms. Another way of a captive utilizing reinsurance is to seed risk, which is to lay off risk in order to cap its liabilities. Cool. So, Bruce, captive insurers often use different types of reinsurance arrangements. Could you elaborate on reinsurance structures commonly used by captives and when each might be appropriate? Sure. Reinsurance, when you think about it, is not an all or nothing type transaction. In other words, 
all the business that comes in doesn't necessarily have to go out in a reinsurance transaction. So you really have an opportunity, if you will, to sort of slice and dice what you've assumed and seed it to different parties. So reinsurance in particular risk can provide protection for various pieces of the risk. So you can seed 100% of it. You can seed a percentage of it. You can seed a percentage of it in excess of a certain amount. You can seed a percentage of the amount retained and a different percentage of the amount excess of that amount. And so basically all of this is done to reach a point where the captive is comfortable with the amount of risk that it's retaining given its resources, its capital, et cetera. And in addition, there's other types of reinsurance, which normally, which falls into categories. Normally people look at what's called a reinsurance where it's indemnity reinsurance. In other words, the reinsured party, the captive, if they see business to a commercial company, is indemnified if they have a loss by the commercial company. But they stay liable on the risk whether they get indemnified or not. And that's indemnity reinsurance. On the other hand, you have assumption reinsurance. In the case of assumption reinsurance, what happens is that the reinsurer assumes the liability, the insured releases the insurance company, and everybody agrees that the insured will now only look to the reinsurer for reimbursement of his losses. So in other words, the middleman, if you will, the original insurer comes out of the equation and the other one, two parties are there. That's very often used in situations where the insurer that was in the middle is trying to get rid of a line of business they don't want to write anymore, and some other insurers want to take it, or they're going to go out of business altogether and they want to basically have somebody else assume the business and take care of their insurance. Great. Saren, captive insurance is subject to various regulations, compliance requirements. How do these factors impact the selection and management of reinsurance for captives? You are correct. Regulatory requirements can certainly impact captives in a number of ways and the reinsurance they write. For example, captives are only licensed in one state. So if they're providing retail coverage, for example, coverage of subcontractors or lessees, state law is going to push the coverage to be written by a licensed insurance company in the first instance, and then the captive would end up reinsuring it. Because otherwise, the transaction would have to comply with self-procurement rules, and that can be very difficult. Some coverages, for example, workers' comp, have to be written by a licensed insurance company. And so you might also see the captive enter into a reinsurance agreement with the direct insurer to accept that coverage. Um, And then when buying reinsurance, in other words, not assuming risk through reinsurance, but ceding risk through reinsurance, a captive may do so to limit its regulatory capital needs. Awesome. Bruce, what is risk pooling and what is the relationship between risk pooling and reinsurance for captives? Because, you know, I, I hear those terms a lot, but, but I'm not sure I could really distinguish between the two. And I, I'd love for our listeners to make sure they understand. Well, actually, Joel, it's not all that different or difficult or different than when you're looking at regular insurance. So when, when you think of a pooling arrangement, 
they're done generally in two ways. Either you have a pooling entity, which is a special purpose entity that acts as a pooling vehicle, or they could just do it through a reinsurance treaty, a reinsurance agreement. So what happens in the pool is that the captive will assume risk from their insurers. They basically will pay a premium to the pool, whether the pooling entity or the reinsurance treaty, for the pooling vehicle to assume part of their risk. Let's say it's all 100%. So they assume 100% of the risk from the captive. And the captive pays a premium for them to assume it. By the same token, the captive assumes risk from the pool and receives a premium from the pool to assume a percentage of the total pool risk. So the captive's risks are insured with the pool, and the captives now become obligated to insure the risks of the entire, a little piece of the entire pool. Now, what what happens is, just so you understand, is oftentimes the premium paid and the premium received at the beginning of the year are similar or the same. Because if you pay $100 into a pool, and the pool had $1,000, including your 100 and your premium payment was 10% of the pool, you would get back 10% of the pool premium to reinsure the pool. So there's on that first day, there's an exchange, which is usually uh, very similar. The thing is with the pool, as losses occur over the period that the business runs off, the captive will put losses into the pool or see losses to the pool, and the pool will see losses to the captive. Now think about what I'm going to say for a minute. The captive sees more losses, more in dollar terms, in losses to the pool than it has to pay the pool for reinsurance of everybody else in the pool. Then the captive makes money, right? Because it's got reimbursed for more losses than it's had to pay out, and vice versa. So all of the pool members at the end of the year or end of years, however long they've spent with the pool, everybody will probably make some money and lose some money. Very often will people break even, which is what happens on that first day. Okay. So, I mean, that's generally how these pools work. And there's lots of other elements to the pool, but economically, that's what happens when you put this pay the pool. For the, for the simple-minded like me, Give me the, the key advantage that captives gain from utilizing the risk pooling strategy. What, what, what is well, it? What, okay, what happens is, assuming you have a pool with relatively homogeneous risks, but you have people from or participants from different industries, participants from different geographic locations, etc. And so what happens is what your obligations are, are becoming are not your obligations, but they're the obligations of this big pool. So over time, what happens is the volatility of what you're insuring in your captive is suppressed because you're not just insuring your risk, which could be a bad risk in one year, right? You're basically taking a piece of everybody's risk. So basically that sort of flattens out the volatility to some degree over time and makes running the captive a little bit more, uh, well, let me say a little less uh, traumatic in some instances for the people who are running the captive. <laughs> okay, thanks. All right, Saren, 
What are some of the issues captives have faced with risk pooling and how are they resolving the big ones that you're, you're going to cover with us? <laughs> <laughs> so as Bruce was just saying, the, the purpose of a pool is to take risks together and create risk distribution and the law of large numbers plays out to spread that risk and even things out. And so that with that in mind, what we've seen in a number of the different micro captive cases, the courts have indicated where there's been problems with pooling involved in the cases. So, for example, because there have been no losses in the pools in these cases, it looks like you have the circular flow of cash that Bruce mentioned. It Because mm-hmm. the only thing happening is the day one where you're exchanging premium and there are no losses. So there's no economic gains. So that we've mm-hmm. seen as a problem. And so. Okay. The way you solve for that is to write lines of business with some predictability of loss so that you actually have losses. Other things we've seen in these cases are that the types of risks in the pool could create outsized losses that participants could not pay. And again, that's managing the risks. To solve for that is managing the risks you're writing. You don't want to typically captives don't write excess coverage. I mean, they do in some cases, but having a pool of all excess coverage with participants that have limited assets that might not be able to pay out the losses just because they don't have the assets is not going to be a good pool feature. Another problem we've seen is accepting unknown risks. Captives typically don't want to accept risks that they don't know what they are because they don't want to have unexpected liabilities. And again, the solution for this is that people should know what they're writing. They should be apprised of the coverages that they are putting their cash at risk for. Another thing, and this goes back to the 1960s, there was a revenue rule the IRS put out about a flood insurance exchange. And the participants in this exchange were grouped by geographic area. So in other words, everybody was in the same floodplain that was in the pool. And that was problematic because there, everybody would experience the same flood and people wouldn't be able to get their losses paid. The fix for that is geographic dispersion. Okay. I mean, I, I like that. That kind of sounds like pooling, one of the concepts of pooling, right? You're sharing risk, but you're not all experiencing the same. Sounds exactly. reasonable. <laughs> all right, Bruce, could you share a specific example or case study where risk pooling and reinsurance played a crucial role in the success of a captive insurance program? Well, you're aware of some situations where for tax purposes, well, let me go back for a second. There are a couple of very basic tax precedents which deal with when a company is going to be treated as an insurance company for federal income tax purposes, and therefore when it can set up reserves and the affiliates can take deductions for premiums. And they basically run in two lines, one being that you have a bunch of affiliated entities that basically see business as the captive, and the other one being unrelated business written in the captive, meaning unrelated to the group. And there are, I will just say that there's some authority now about uh, exposure units, but there really hasn't been enough discussion of that, so that I think people are relying on that as yet. So in any event, so you have a company, for example, that owns all its businesses around the country directly, 
they're not in separate entities. They're just owned. They own the business directly, and it's not in a corporate entity, which would be utilized in this analysis. So basically, if you participate in the pool, you're getting unrelated business from all the other parties because your obligations are related to these other assumed risks. So that has been helpful to some people in that situation uh, as far as pooling is concerned. Okay. Well, so that sounds great. All right. Last question here. So Bruce and Sarah, and as the landscape of insurance and risk management, you know, is continually evolving, what are some of the important strategies that risk pools can employ to avoid problems? Okay. You want me, you want me to go first? I'm going to, I'm going to touch on some of the things Sarah said already. One thing is that people who are participating in the pool ideally should know who they're participating with on some level and have some idea of what is going into the pool. And ideally, maybe they vote on new members of the pool. Another thing is that the risks that are being written in the pool should be somewhat homogeneous so that everybody has a pretty good idea of what's, what's going on in the pool. There may be policy exclusions where there's a particular element of those homogeneous risks for some of the members that are particularly offensive to other members. And so they're going to say, oh, we don't want to write that in full. So that could be taken out. We should have a single actuary used to determine premium for everybody in the pool. The pool participants should basically be treated as uh, transferring risk for accounting purposes. And addition, there shouldn't be things in the pool which limit the element of transfer of risk. And what I'm going to, an example might be a retrospectively rated premium, which in most cases would cause people to pony up additional premium for their losses. So they really wouldn't they'd basically be paying their own losses. And another thing is something that Saren mentioned before is that there should be some facility in the pool to make sure that the pool members are going to be able to pay their obligations when they come due. And that could be funds withheld. In other words, the, the funds are held by the pool and they don't cede them back to the members. It could be the members have to give letters of credit or some other type of facility. And Sarah throw out some more things. You want to make sure you have an adequate number of risks and pool participants to diversify risk. This is that smoothing out liability point. You want to have risk that can be actuarially quantified and so that the premium can be actuarially determined. In other words, to not have novel unknown risks because you want to create some sort of stability of loss results across the pool. You're going to want participants in the pool to comply with contract terms and have an adequate description of risks in the underlying agreement and arm's length dealings between the participants. You want to address any credit risk issues that you might have with participants who might not have adequate funds. And you want to make sure that participants have a business reason for participating. In other words, that they really want to diversify their risk portfolio, not just get a tax deduction. Great. Well, hey, thanks for covering this, what I would say is pretty tough topic with us. And, you know, you've been prolific writers over the years. So I want to tell our listeners that Captive.com is a free site with tons of educational information. If you're considering a captive 
you're considering reinsurance for your captive, there's a great resources and a list of service providers that you can reach out to and contact on captive.com to help you with these complicated problems and lots of great articles written by both of these two wonderful podcast guests today. So I hope you will like our podcast and share it with a friend if you think it could be helpful for them. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thanks you. for listening. Thanks, Joel.